Fine. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles together to Isaiah 53 this morning. Isaiah 53 can be, can be found on page 614. And just before we dive in, as we stand here on the first weekend of April, I want to talk about what's going to be happening here at Grace in the first Sunday of June. Now, June might feel like a long way off as you stand in this moment, uh, but these next two months will go fast as time always does. And on Sunday, June 5th, we are planning to have baptism services at our morning, at our morning gatherings, both 11 a.m. and 9 a.m., and I had the chance to share a little bit about baptism a few weeks ago in our Galatians series, um, as our practice here at Grace is believer's baptism, where, where throughout the New Testament we see the pattern of someone placing their faith in Jesus for salvation, and then they are baptized as a symbol and a proclamation of that faith. And, and it is a kind of an experiential moment, a, a, a proclamation moment where when doing it before your faith community, you are kind of declaring that you are united with him in his death and in his resurrection, which we will touch on in our passage this morning. Um, not done as a requirement for salvation or kind of an obligation, but again, a joyful proclamation. And at Grace, we do wait until middle school to baptize believers. And I want to be clear, we're not saying you cannot be a believer until middle school, um, but at Grace, we've made the decision, or you know, really leadership from the past that we continue tradition here, is that believer's baptism is a one-time ordinance. And so we just think it is wise to wait until middle school where someone can stand before their church, affirm that faith, understand what they're doing, understand the joyful accountability that comes with it, and for that to be a memorable moment in their life, in their uh, faith journey that they can then clearly look back on. Um, and so the baptisms will be on June 5th. So for those interested in hearing more information about getting baptized, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to have you sign up online to receive a video uh, that is of me teaching on baptism uh, that you will watch, and then we will be in touch with next steps. So hear me, signing up for this does not mean you're signing up to get baptized. You are signing up to get more information about getting baptized, all right? So this is not locking you in to anything if you sign up. And I say that to say this, if you have not been baptized as a believer, uh, and you're maybe on the fence, or perhaps you've never been baptized before, or you've been baptized as an infant, and you're wrestling with whether or not you should look into believer's baptism, uh, I just encourage you to sign up, right? If you're even thinking about it, just sign up, hear our conviction for it. And um, as with everything in our sign-ups here at Grace, there's a multiple uh, avenues you can go to sign up. Um, there's a QR code on your bulletin that you have uh, in front of you that will lead you to our sign-up page, and you can find the Baptism at Grace sign-up. If you're like, man, you always throw out these QR codes, and I'm never going to look at a QR code ever. Like, I'm just never going to do it. I understand. Uh, you have a connection card in the pew in front of you if you're here this morning. You can even write on that, or I think there might be a box on the back where you can check that you're interested in getting baptized, and you can put that card in the box back uh, at Grace Connect. Or if you're like, that doesn't work for me either, you can just go to Grace Connect at the end of the service and just put your name down somewhere, and we will find it, and we will uh, be in touch with you and get you that next step. So a lot of ways, but we are um, excited about being able to do that baptism service here in a couple months. We'd love for you to be a part of it. All right, we are now in the second week 
of what is going to be a four-week series leading up to Easter Sunday called Just As He Said. And and the real focus on this month-long series is pretty narrow in a sense. We're we're, we're really trying to look at two things. Um, One, seeing how the resurrection has always been the cornerstone of God's plan for restoring his creation and his people. And then how the resurrection shapes and can shape the way we approach our lives today. So to see how it's always been the plan, but then also how that actually impacts our lives today. Um, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And he first writes that uh, Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures meaning according to the Old Testament. That was when he was writing the first century, when he wrote scriptures, he's thinking about what we know as the Old Testament. But you could go through the Old Testament, and you'll never find the word resurrection. So what's he talking about? That's part of it. And then later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we, meaning followers of Christ, are to be the most pitied. So, is the resurrection that vital to you? Do your beliefs and what you profess and your life and how you live, does it reflect how vital the resurrection is to you? And one of the many reasons that uh, I wanted to do this series is that all too often, uh, Christians think about the resurrection around Easter, and then that's all. But what if I told you that the resurrection can not only impact your life today, but it could actually be the primary shaping force of every single day for the rest of your life, that there is a way to live your life where every day you could be thinking about the resurrection. What would that look like? That's where we're headed this morning. Last Sunday, we saw the premiere, what you could call the messianic poetic passage in the Old Testament in Psalm 22. And now this week, we will look at the premier messianic prophetic passage in the Old Testament, and that's Isaiah 53. I know many of you are probably very familiar with Isaiah 53. It's probably one of the most popular chapters in the Old Testament. And while it is our understanding and our conviction that the whole Bible points to the person and work of Jesus Christ, no matter what chapter, what verse, what page you are on in your Bible, that it eventually points to Jesus, there are what you could call some hot spots in the Old Testament that directly speak of a Messiah. One that is coming, who will save and restore and rescue God's people from the rain and chains of darkness. And Psalm 22 and now Isaiah 53 are two of those hot spots. You could say they are indeed maybe the hottest of hot spots in the Old Testament. And if you are not familiar with Isaiah 53, what I'm about to read was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And it speaks of this man who the passage calls the Lord's servant, who will suffer deeply and through his suffering will bring new life for many. So Isaiah 53, I'm going to read the whole thing. 12 verses. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. As was the case last week, um, we will only scratch the surface of Isaiah 53 this morning. It's interesting just the timing of our kind of prayer schedule and praying for our missions partners. Uh, Brian prayed for Chosen People Ministries uh, that seeks to reach the Jewish population. Isaiah 53 is probably the premier chapter in the Old Testament that a ministry like Chosen People uses to reach uh, Jewish men and women, uh, talking about, again, 700 years before Jesus was born, talking about Jesus in this way. And while the chapter is most often talked about in the context of the death of Jesus and why he had to die as an atonement for sin, again, in line with our series aim, I actually want to focus on verses 10 through 12 that often don't get as much attention in Isaiah 53, but speak about the triumph that will happen on the other side of this crucifixion. And I want us to see from the word how resurrection was, again, always God's plan, always the cornerstone for God's plan, and why the early church, including Paul, focused more on the resurrection than they did the cross. Why did they do that? And so we're going to unpack that by asking three questions this morning, starting with number one, what does resurrection mean? What does resurrection mean? So I've said a couple times now, Isaiah was a prophet, a prophet who was raised up and sent by God to the people of Israel around 700 B.C. And through Isaiah, the Lord announces his sovereign control over all things. 
how he appointed Israel to be a light to the neighboring nations and how they were to shine that light by their love and their obedience to him. But the great tragedy of Israel was their repeated faithlessness to do that. And despite this privilege of being God's chosen people to shine that light, that is a light they did not shine. And so for the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God calls out their faithlessness. He warns of their judgment that is coming. He says they will be overtaken by a foreign power and become an exiled nation. That's 39 chapters. And then chapter 40, there's a turn in Isaiah where he begins now to provide comfort for this nation that will end up in exile. He begins to cast a vision for them and still hope within them that the Lord will not leave them in exile, but he will bring a remnant back. Isaiah 40 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. And the chapter I probably read most throughout the year. But from there, in the second half of Isaiah, the prophet begins to write about the Lord's servant who will come to Israel to give them assurance, to secure hope, and then to be the means through which their faithlessness will be atoned for. And that gets you to Isaiah 53, which answers the crucial question, how? How will the servant restore God's people? It's a passage on atonement, that God covers the sins of his people through the death of his servant. If your Bibles are still open, verse 5 is kind of the key verse here, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He pierced for our sin. He was crushed, it says, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And that gets you to the heart of the gospel. That Jesus will be sent by the Father to heal and restore sinners by giving himself on our behalf. This is a picture, just like Psalm 22 was a picture, of, Messiah, of the Messiah on the cross, dying for our sins hundreds of years before he was born. It would have been stunning for the people hearing this in Israel in real time, but I think what would be most stunning would be the picture of triumph that came after. Like, will it be a victorious battle through which this Lord's servant will win over and free his people? Will it be a strong-armed kind of general that's going to come overpower the enemy? No. Not a grand general, but a suffering servant who by his suffering will conquer evil by dying for others. It's the incredible claim of the gospel that the one who is innocent is killed for those who are guilty. So those who are guilty can be made innocent. Welcome to the gospel. It's not what you'd expect. But let's not miss the prophecy to resurrection in Isaiah 53, in that the suffering servant dies, but then there's another stunning reversal similar to what we saw last week in Psalm 22, although I think this is even more stunning because it happens in one verse. Look at verse 10 again. Look at the reversal that makes no sense in verse 10. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. You ready? Comma, reversal. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 10 makes no sense. That this servant is crushed in the first half, and then we read that he shall prolong his days in the back half. It makes no sense without resurrection. Life after death. Resurrection means that death becomes untrue. Resurrection is God's triumph over evil. Resurrection is the key that holds all truth together. If you go back up to verse 1 of Isaiah 53 of kind of how he intros this chapter, he, he connects the word belief with revelation. Do you see that in verse 1? Who has believed what he has heard, to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Meaning, when it comes to the gospel, it makes no sense to our worldly minds. You cannot see it until you are shown it. But once you are shown it, you cannot unsee it any longer. Belief and revelation. Um, have, have you ever watched one of these videos? Um, I, I don't know if there's a more formal name for them, but I see them. They're just called speed painters. You ever seen a video on YouTube or seen it on TV? A speed painter. If you haven't, don't take a couple minutes on YouTube this afternoon. What happens is that there is a painter who starts with a big blank canvas in front of him. And he's in a venue of some sort or an arena. And the speed painter is given from anywhere from one to maybe three minutes. And they, once the clock starts, they just start splashing paint on the canvas from a distance. Like literally, I don't even know how they're doing. They're just throwing paint at this canvas, doing a stroke here, doing a stroke there, and they're going so fast. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit of this color, a little bit of that color, and you're watching it. And, and in real time, you're trying to make sense of what is happening, of what he's trying to turn this into, but it doesn't appear that there's any rhyme or reason to what they are doing. And then time is up, and the speed painter steps back, and it just looks like a random mess of paint all over the place. And if it's your first time watching it, you actually have a moment like, oh no, I don't think he did it. <laughs> like, I, should we just clap? I feel like we should just clap now because I feel bad for him. Like, that is nothing. What I see is nothing. I just see paint all over the place. Like, I think I could do what he just did in a minute. Like, I'm not impressed. And then the painter steps up to the canvas and flips it upside down. And in that moment, a portrait, usually of some kind of famous person, comes to life. And if it's your real first time ever watching it or seeing it, it's like a moment where you're like, oh my gosh. I was just about to fake clap for the guy. And then you rewind the video and you watch it all over again. And you notice that there's no random splash of paint. Every decision was marked. Every decision was pre-calculated. Every single brush, every single color perfectly set out. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does to the Bible story. 
The moment God raised Jesus from the dead, he flipped the canvas upside down. And in that moment, you look back and everything makes sense. And you cannot see it until you were shown it. But once you were shown it, you cannot unsee it anymore. The second half of verse 10 is the canvas flip of Isaiah 53. For it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and by his death he made a sacrificial offering for guilt that was not his guilt, so that, flip, he shall fulfill the promise to save and restore his offspring by being raised to new life and prolonging his days forever. The resurrection is the canvas flip of redemptive history. And in that moment, we see that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who triumphed over evil by suffering death for the sins of those who believe in him. Which leads us now to the second question, which emerges from here. What does the resurrection mean for us? What does the resurrection mean for us? Verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What does the resurrection mean for us? First, primarily, he makes us righteous. The, the first and basic need and longing of our hearts is the forgiveness of sin. Because if there is no forgiveness, then there is no hope in anything else. The foundation for every other blessing we have in Christ is that God will not hold our sins against us. Because those sins have been paid for by his death, and victory has been declared over those sins being paid in full as validated by his resurrection. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. See what? We were already told in verse 10. He shall see his offspring. That's us. In order for Jesus to see his offspring and prolong our days, that is only possible if both he and we experience resurrection together. Everyone in this room needs forgiveness. We know deep inside that there is a brokenness not only out there in the world, but in us. And we can either try and convince ourselves that we can just deal with the imperfections and make the best of it. We can think God will just overlook our brokenness if there is a God and hope it works out for us in the end if we do enough good things. We can try to manage for ourselves or we can receive the gift of God's Son who paid for our sin in full. Who forgives us. And not only forgives us, but counts us righteous. Adopting us as sons and daughters. The resurrection means we are accounted righteous. Secondly, the resurrection means he intercedes for us. If your Bibles are open, look down to verse 12, the back half of verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus died on the cross and then left the realm of the dead in his resurrection so as to never die again. There's a lot of things that means for us, but for purposes here, that means Jesus is alive today. April 3rd, 2022, he's alive today. 700 years after this prophecy, it was fulfilled when Jesus was raised from the dead. And now 2,000 years have passed since that fulfillment, and Jesus is as alive today as the moment he was when he walked out the grave. And he ascended to the Father to sit on the throne and make intercession for us. Why that is so vital is because for those who are in Christ, those who have placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, not only are you not condemned by sin, but hear me, you will never be condemned by sin ever again. Sit with that for a moment. Not only is all your past sins atoned for, fully forgiven, but you will never be condemned by sin ever again. It doesn't mean you won't sin. It means you will never be condemned by sin because you have someone interceding for you today, April 3rd, 2022. This is the heartbeat of Paul's glorious declaration in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 35. I think we'll have it on the screen. He writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Look, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Look, more than that, who was raised. Who is, present tense, at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. To put it concisely, the resurrection matters. For by it we are saved and we are kept by Christ. It's not enough that he saved you. It's that he keeps you. So in times of distress, times when you feel totally out of control in your life, like I feel like I just have no bearings on my life right now. Every aspect of it, it just feels like it's just spinning out of control. And you feel like you're losing your grip on not only your life, but you're losing your grip on your faith. You're losing your grip on your God. You can cry out, Lord, keep me. Keep me. And he will. And it is in those moments, as painful as they are, that you experience the joy of realizing anew that it was not your grip on him that kept you, but his grip on you. Jesus is alive and well in 2022. And in him, you are too. That's the second question. What does direction mean for us? Leads to the third and final question. What does the resurrection mean for us each day? I want to try to get practical here for us at the end. What does the resurrection mean for us each day? 
One of the aims of this series is to help us not only see how the resurrection is the fulfillment of God's plan, not only how the resurrection kind of informs and shapes your eternity, but also how it shapes our lives each day. And last week in Psalm 22, we finished by seeing how the resurrection empowers our pursuit of holiness and our commitment to mission. Those were the two applications last week. This week, we finished with Isaiah 53 showing us how the resurrection empowers our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. The resurrection empowers our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. I said it twice because I imagine there's at least some of you going, he didn't actually just say that. That might feel like a weird thing to hear at first. Maybe you don't initially associate salvation and resurrection and Easter with Suffering you choose. I think that is partly because oftentimes, and I can be guilty of this, when we invite people to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, there's either an implication or at times an explicitly stated promise that if you become a Christian, your suffering will go away. Your problems will go away. Because God is on your side now. And God wants you to thrive. And God wants to answer all your prayers. And God wants to make you prosperous healthy and wealthy and happy, the suburban dream. And the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, don't get me wrong, is primarily about a substitute for our sins, that because he bore the cost of sin, we don't have to, that he relieves our suffering of being outside of Christ. That is a glorious truth we cling to, that he's our substitute, But the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is also our example to follow. You don't have to turn there, but next week, Pastor Joe will be continuing in our series in Matthew 16. So I want to take a sneak peek to Matthew 16 as it relates to Isaiah 53. At this point in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he must suffer many things. He must be killed, and he tells them three times, on the third day, he will be raised. Then he says, in verses 24 to 25, I believe also this will be on the screen. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The disciples, along with everyone else in the first century, viewed the cross as a symbol of death, because that's what it was. Criminals in the Roman Empire who were sentenced to death would have to carry their own cross to the place where they would then be hung on that cross. To carry a cross would be a literal picture of the phrase, dead man walking. Jesus told his disciples, if you want to follow me, be a dead man walking. For those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. That's the paradox of the Christian life, is that it is those who die to self that live to Christ. Those who, are saved, who, those who are saved from eternal suffering from sin 
are empowered to willingly suffer for the sake of Christ. So get, try to be practical for us again. What does it mean to willingly suffer as a Christian today? I think you could say it like this, that it is denying self-comfort in this world for the purpose of seeking the flourishing of others. What does it look like to willingly suffer as a Christian today? It is denying self-comfort in this world for the purpose of seeking the flourishing of others. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you love yourself more than your neighbor. And a willingness to suffer says that my posture will not be one of prioritizing my own well-being as my highest aim in life. In church, we're in North Jersey, and this is a challenge for any church, I think especially for a church here, because we are immersed in a world that tells you your comfort should be your highest aim. That life is marketed um, as to how healthy, happy, and wealthy you can be as possible. And success in a world currency is measured in the amount of comforts you can afford and indulge in. The more comfortable you are, the higher up in society you are. The more envious of the world is of you, and therefore we measure our value by our level of materialistic comfort because that is how everyone else is valuing us. But a resurrection currency says, I will not prioritize my comfort in place of sacrifice. I will, where the Lord leads, inconvenience myself for the convenience of others. Because my true comfort, it ain't in this world. My true comfort was secured 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked out of that grave. And so I said at the beginning, what would it mean if there was a way that the resurrection could be on your mind every single day? Here's how I think it can happen. Let me offer this to you. That, brothers and sisters, you have the power and the freedom to wake up every single day and not first ask, how can I be the most comfortable today? But rather, how can I glorify God and seek the flourishing of others today? For, in the long run, you will find that if your primary aim is to glorify God and seek the flourishing of others, you will experience the truth of Jesus' words, that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Church, I'm pleading with you to see that you will be most comfortable in Christ when you're denying your comfort in this world. Honestly, what would this mean for your marriage? if that was the question you woke up with each morning? What would it mean for your family? What would it mean for our church? What would it mean for the marginalized groups in our communities and in our region if we woke up saying, not how can I be most comfortable today, but how can I glorify God and seek the flourishing of others today? When this is our posture each day we wake up, we live like those who believe the promises of God, with our eyes fixed on eternity 
and the glory it will entail. And we could steward our days here while there is still time. I want to finish with an illustration from the book, The Gospel, written by Ray Ortland. A couple years ago, we gave it to every member. It'll be on the screen, and then we'll close in prayer. He writes, Becoming a Christian doesn't just add something to the old you, it creates a new you. The risen Christ indwells you now, never to leave. People who believe this big gospel show it. We still suffer like others, but we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Each of us is like a homeless man who sleeps under a bridge and eats out of dumpsters. One day, a limousine pulls up and out steps an attorney attorney who hands him a letter. A long-lost uncle has died and left him a fortune. The check will arrive in a few days. Suddenly, the cardboard shelter doesn't feel so hopeless. He can live with it for a while longer. A vast fortune is coming. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to see that it is in this truth that you promise the fullness of life that we have been created for. Father, the fullness of joy that we've been created to feel, the fullness of impact we've been created to have in this world is not by prioritizing our comfort, but because you are our substitute for sin, You are also our example to follow in this life. And Father, we know that this is all true because of the truth that the angel proclaimed in Matthew 28, that he is risen, just as he said. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and respond in worship before we conclude with the Lord's Supper.